Um, so if you, if you want to follow along on your, I've got my phone here, if you want to follow along on your phone, your Bible, or um, the words will be on the screen as well. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 11. So a wee bit of Acts 11, and then I'm going to dip into a wee bit of Acts 12. I'm going to start at verse 19 of Acts 11. Now those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phasenia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So the whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first to Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down to Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agus, stood up and through the Spirit, sorry, I'll stop there and let me go to um, chapter 12. And scroll down to verse 25. So the last few verses of that chapter, and then I'll go into chapter 13. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lysias of Syrin, Manon who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on him and sent them off. Thank you, David. Well, look, thank you, folks. I can't tell you how delighted I am to have the opportunity to share with you uh, for a few minutes this morning about this. Um, strange how these passages just converge at, at a moment, uh, and maybe the Lord is going to do something with this that we can't predict. Um, delighted because this is the next part of a series that you as a church are going to be looking at in Acts And Dave and others, of course, will be taking this uh, forwards from here in the coming weeks. The Acts of the Apostles is uh, sometimes called the Acts of the Holy Spirit uh, because in these pages, amongst much else, God, the Holy Spirit, startles and shapes his church. Um, There's electricity in the air when we read passages like this that we've just heard. Chapter 11, which we're looking at today, is a central part of the whole drama of the book of Acts. It's like a hinge around which a great deal turns. In fact, it's not overstating it to say that if it weren't for what happened here in Antioch, we wouldn't be here. So this is a really significant moment. 
from the beginning of God's, I'm going to try to explain why it's so significant, but if you work with me for a moment, from the very beginning of God's big story in Genesis, one idea was repeated and repeated and repeated over 108 times, over 108 times uh, in the Old Testament. And that idea is that God is the God of all nations. That phrase just repeats and repeats and repeats. God is the God of all nations. And the idea is that God does not restrict his love or his grace or indeed his activity and his purposes to one particular ethnic group. His love and his grace and his purposes extend across all ethnicities, all languages, all cultures. Heaven is not multi, I beg your pardon, heaven is not monocultural. Yes, it's true, of course, God did choose the Hebrew people, the Jews, as the vehicle through which he would work this out. But the Jews, the children of Abraham, were not the group to which God's grace and love were restricted. He explicitly did not do that. Abraham was given a promise and it illustrates this, almost the very, first, the, the very beginning of this whole thing. Abraham was given a promise, which illustrates this. And the promise was this, that Abraham's descendants would be so many that Abraham was really going to have to scratch his head to work this out. It was as if he could look up at the night sky uh, where there's no light pollution and try to count the stars, which of course is a ridiculous thing to try to do with the naked eye and imagine that that would be the number only more so of his descendants, which would have been pretty puzzling for Abraham since he and his wife didn't have any children and they were already old when this promise was given to him. Pretty amazing. So you're going to have all of these descendants. And, and furthermore, not only are you going to have all of these descendants, but then God said, and he really nails it down, and he says, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. Not one, not just your own children, innumerable though they may be to you, but all nations on earth are going to be blessed through you. And the word all in Hebrew means all. That's without exception. So there's no limit to this. Now, I imagine he felt good about that, probably, as I've said, a bit puzzled as well. But woven into this promise was what God said to him repeatedly. Don't limit this. Don't limit this, Abraham. It's easy to track through the history of the Old Testament, which I'm sure you know, you've read at least bits of it, so you'll have, this will have popped up in, in your own encounters. It's easy to track the misunderstandings that then grew up around this. And there were misunderstandings which were repeated and repeated. Do you know? Essentially, the problem was that the people didn't believe it. They genuinely didn't believe what God had said to Abraham. Or at the very least, they were confused about what it meant. Jonah, do you remember Jonah, the story of Jonah? Jonah didn't believe it. Absolutely, straight up did not believe that this was right, what God had said to Abraham, all nations. Because Jonah was told to go and bring the good news to the Iraqis in Nineveh. And he says, you're kidding. I'm out of here. I am absolutely not doing that. So off he went in the opposite direction. He didn't believe what God had said 
to Abraham. Psalm 67, one of the loveliest psalms that's sometimes read at this time of year because it relates to the harvest, includes these words. It says, may the peoples praise you, O God. May, there's that word again, may all the peoples praise you so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Really? No, surely you can't mean that. All peoples? All the ends of the earth? (laughs) God's people are to be international, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual, yet united in their supreme allegiance to Jehovah. That's the essence of this promise that was given by God to Abraham from the start. But in the Old Testament era, for the most part, they either didn't believe it or they were confused about it or didn't want to know. But God said it repeatedly and the people uh, ignored it serially. They just didn't get it. There was in their eyes no evidence for it. There was no desire for it. It's actually, and and they did, I was hinting at this when chatting with Helen, they did what we do. They did what we have done in our history, even in this province. They domesticated God. They nationalized God. They wrapped him in a flag. They made him their own. They said, he's one of us. It's much less trouble to do that than all this talk of ethnic diversity. Don't really get it. Don't like it. Actually, don't believe it. It's not true. Yes, it is. So we come to Acts where God the Holy Spirit sets about this issue with some determination because he sees the damage that has been done by not getting this. And there is persecution of Christians. Let's set the scene. Uh, so we dive into this and just race through these, these scriptures. And if it's on the screen, can we get verses 19 following on the screen? Can we do that, guys? That would be brilliant. There's persecution of Christians after the death of one of the leaders. That's Stephen. And Stephen is murdered. And the believers to put it bluntly, are fleeing for their lives after Stephen's death. They're scattering from Jerusalem, getting out of the way, finding a place of safety. Now, these believers are almost all Jewish, and they are mostly living in Judah. In fact, most of them centered on the city of Jerusalem. That's how the church began. That's what it was at the start. But suddenly they have been dispersed. They have been pushed out of their comfort zone, their geographical space. And they've been sent all over the place. And this verse 19 and, and 20 gives us an idea of just some of the places that they've gone. They've gone to Phoenicia. Now Phoenicia is modern day Lebanon. All right, so just north of of where they were. They've, They've gone to Lebanon. They've gone to Phoenicia. They've gone to the island of Cyprus and not on holiday. They have gone to escape for their lives to Cyprus. Some of them have gone to Cyrene, which is in North Africa. It's actually in what we would know as Libya. So they've just been scattered. This way, that, they've been scattered. It's all these places. But critically, and you'll see it here in this uh, this story and in, in in this scripture, they have gone to Antioch. Now, Antioch is in modern day southeastern Turkey. 
And the key thing for us to know about Antioch is this, that in the known world at that time, there were three really big cities. One, obviously, was Rome, and it was the center of the Roman Empire. One was Alexandria, which had been the center of a previous empire under Egypt. And the third big city in the known world was Antioch. In fact, in Antioch, incredibly, at that time, there were just shy of a million people living in the city, which was vast in the culture at that time. So that's where some of the believers find themselves in this big three central population in this urban center with all its ebb and flow of cultures and languages and expectations and ideas. And it was just a total melting pot. And into the midst of this vast melting pot, boom, 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 suddenly there are believers. And what did they do? Well, verse 19, they do what you do. They planted a church. And there it is. And the church emerged from dark times of persecution, do you see? If they had been asked to describe how it felt, they would have said, well, we're, we're, we're running for our lives here. We're under threat. And they planted a church. That's often God's way. Deep disciples are often forged in adversity, in tough times, not comfort. When we read this scripture and a little further on, we discover that James, the brother of John, one of the 12, one of the very first 12 followers of Jesus, 12 disciples of Jesus, James the brother, he had been murdered also. He died by the sword. We don't know exactly what happened, but he died by the sword. Stephen, we've already mentioned, he died. He was stoned to death. I just, I, I don't try not to picture this. It's just awful. They knew these people as they were fleeing for their lives. These weren't just names to them. They looked up to them. These were mentors. These were people that they knew and understood and they lost their lives because of Jesus. And so they fled and they planted this church. So their deaths, far from driving them underground in fear or in despair, drove them on to plant a church. Now initially they did what they knew, as the scripture here says, they preached the gospel to the people they knew. They used their own language to reach their own people. That was the line of least resistance, it's what you do. So they preached only among the Jews, it said. But then in verse 20, everything changes for this planted church because this planted church becomes an unimaginable church. It becomes unimaginable. Maybe they remembered Pentecost when the disciples spoke in all kinds of different languages from every part of the known world. Maybe, maybe they remembered that. Maybe they remembered the scriptures which we've already referred to uh, from the Old Testament and they began to put it together in their heads. Maybe they remembered that. Maybe they listened to Peter's remarkable experiences when Cornelius, uh, when he visited Cornelius and he had this vision of a sheet, do you remember, which came down from heaven and it was filled with things that were unclean and the Lord said, get up and eat. And he says, oh, I can't possibly do that. Oh, yes, you can. You've no idea how big my idea is. Maybe they, maybe, maybe they got that. But whatever it was, 
they plunged into the city of Antioch, into this melting pot, this, this, this buzzing, buzzing urban center with all its mix of peoples and ethnicities and backgrounds and languages. They just plunged in and, and did Jesus with them. Without distinction. So in verse 21, we see that the people responded in numbers. It was a growing church, this planted, unimaginable growing church that they started. I wonder if there was any difference in the message which they preached in these two early phases of that church's life and growth. Now, I've got to be careful in handling the scripture this way, but I, I, go with me for a second. I wonder, I wonder if there was any, any difference in the posture or the tone of what they said as they suddenly discovered that the room was filled with people that they didn't really get or understand culturally, whose languages were different, whose expectations were different. And they had to think, well, how do we, how do we, how do we tell Jesus to people who, who know nothing about him? Who don't even have any sense of an expectation that God might be about to do this thing? How do you begin Well, look at verse 20 and, and 21. There's maybe just a hint in here. It says of these new pioneers of this church as it, as it was planted that they, quotes told the good news about the Lord Jesus. Do you see that? They don't say the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. I know I have to handle this with care. To use the word Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, would have required significant work to explain to a non-Jewish audience. They didn't downplay the truth. They didn't dilute the message, but they adapted, they adjusted how they spoke. So it seems they didn't begin with their Jewishness they began with their Jesusness. They used the word Lord, which would have been familiar in the context of Antioch. It means sir or master or the guy who's in charge. So they planted a church and they contextualized without diluting their message for the people that they were seeking to reach. Once the church had been started, it became very clear in verse 22 that they needed to put some roots down if they were going to grow. So with great wisdom, and I think great generosity of spirit, they approached the Jerusalem church and Barnabas came to visit. Now, Barnabas was coming from the older established Jerusalem church, which still was culturally Jewish, very strongly so. But he was a real encourager. He saw what God was doing amongst them in Antioch and how the church was growing. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just say, oh, this is great, you know, rah, rah. This planted, unimaginable, growing church became a learning church. 
Barnabas must have thought long and hard about this and prayed deeply into it as, as he was asking himself the question, now, look, what do I do here? How do I help this work? How do I, how do I help these people to put roots down and, so that they can do what they do better and in a way that's going to last? Well, what they really need above everything else is to learn these people need to grow in their knowledge of and love of God. These are people who come from every background. They have little knowledge or little background in this other than what they've been able to pick up from the evangelists who started this church. They need to be taught. Now, he then went to Saul of Tarsus, which just kind of floats off the tongue and you sort of expect to find it there. After all, Saul of Tarsus, you know, wow, who else would you want to teach the church? But Saul was an unlikely choice. And here's why. Saul of Tarsus was out of the scene. He had been invisible probably for 10 years, maybe more, at this stage in his life. And God had been doing a work in Saul's life, Saul of Tarsus's life. A work which finds its way into its full expression in Acts chapter 22, whenever you get there in the series. That, that chapter, Acts 22, changed my entire view of ministry, I have to tell you, and that's a whole other story for another day, perhaps. But during this period of, 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 of time when Saul was being formed, that was what was happening here. So he was not a natural choice for Barnabas to choose. But Barnabas saw what God had been doing and Saul, the Jew of Jews, the nationalist of nationalists, what God had been doing to soften and shape his understanding of how the church worked. And he said, he's the guy. They really do need to hear from him to understand how this is all going to hang together. So Saul is brought in and Saul and Barnabas labor together for a full year teaching the church. That's all they do. Amazing. And you can see the fruit of it because this planted, unimaginable, growing, learning church becomes a generous church. Do you see? Verses 29 and 30, if we could have that up on the screen, guys. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's real wisdom in that. And this new church in Antioch, because they had roots down and they understood what this meant, began to put this kind of teaching into practice by blessing. And the blessing was in giving. But look who they're giving to. These people are giving beyond their borders. They are giving to the Jerusalem church. They're Gentiles culturally, historically, linguistically. And they're giving to the Jewish church as they would perceive it in Jerusalem because they're in need. Extraordinary thing. An act of discipleship that gets Abraham's promise. They are making themselves a blessing to all nations. One of the great things about being part of a larger group of churches in the family of PCI, if I can do a wee commercial break here. Of course, it's what I know is that we can give in ways that a local church probably can't. We can leverage our giving at special moments and times. Let me give you an example. If there's a crisis in the world, like for example, last year when that explosion happened in Lebanon, and it was just devastated, devastated the city of, of Beirut in the port area and did so much damage, particularly to the witness of churches which were caught up in that. 
One of the things that we were able to do as a church family was to say to the whole church, all 540 congregations, guys, look, do you see this crisis? We have partners in the Evangelical uh, Synod of Syria and, and Lebanon, and, and these churches have been devastated. Can you help? And people were able to give here and there. Some churches gave a lot. Some churches gave a few pounds or euros. But what it meant was that when it came to give, we weren't able to give just a few pounds or a few hundred or even a few thousand, or it was tens of thousands, maybe even over a hundred thousand. And that's life-changing money that we can leverage when we act together, do you know? So there's a benefit in being able to do this. Lastly, this planted, unimaginable, growing, learning, generous church became a sending church. I'm going to stop with this. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, which Helen read. This, this wasn't easy. This was costly for them. This was the church intentionally and deliberately entering into grief and bereavement upon itself by sending away their spiritual parents. This is really hard. Why would you do that? In this case, they would be grieved so that God, the Holy Spirit, would not be. He called Barnabas and Saul to further work elsewhere, to use their gifts as pioneers and as disciples elsewhere. Now, they needed to be released to do that, and I can imagine that the bonds and the ties were really tight. This was a hard thing to do, but they decided under God they knew this was necessary, and so they pushed them out. Not everybody can plant churches so that they reach the point of viability. Only some people are gifted to do that. God calls and equips people to do this. Not everybody can pastor churches so that they grow in depth and knowledge of the Son of God and become sustainable over time. God calls and equips people to do that. Sometimes it's the same people, but often it isn't. The wise and mature leader and the wise and mature group of elders will be able to pray into this and have a sense of their giftings and will know under God where they need to be and what they need to be doing if they're to follow his call. And it may not be where they currently serve. Sometimes the bonds loosen. You've been doing a thing for a while and you know that the time has come to stop and move on to do something else. I've had that experience. Many of you, I'm sure, also have had that experience. Let me tell you a story as we, as we wrap up. When we planted a, a new church some years ago in Donabate in North County, Dublin, the sending church was in Malahide, which was five or six miles to the south. Now, Malahide wasn't a big church to start with. It was a growing church. It was a vibrant church. It was healthy. But they decided, they decided, because they were absolutely committed to the vision of planting this new church in Donabate, that they were going to set aside some of their best people to do this. And so they identified, they put the word out and said, pray about this. And nine families put up their hand and said, we're going to go and we're going to form the core team to start this new work. And they intentionally entered into a season of grief and bereavement for them as a church 
to send away some of their best. It was like a body cutting off its arm. This was really hard. There were tears. This was really difficult. And they saw that they would have to stop some things that these people had been leading, but in order to do the better thing, which was to start this new work. Families who were very much part of the fabric of that fellowship, gifted and able people, were released so that they could go and become the core of this new church. Hardly surprising, brothers and sisters, that that wee church in Donabed has grown to the point where it now is entering into intentionally a season of grief and bereavement to identify some of its core people to plant a new church further up the coast in Balbriggan. This planted unimaginable, growing, learning, generous church at Antioch became a sending church and became an act of God the Holy Spirit. So my prayer for you is that as you dive into the exciting world of Acts in, in coming weeks and months, uh, however you're led to do this, the story of what God the Holy Spirit did in shaping the church in this book will live for you and become a burden for you so that you are absolutely determined that come what cost you will live it out. So that you might see yourselves in this story and wonder to yourselves, I dare you to do this. I dare you to do this by faith. Wonder to yourselves about what he might have next in store for you.